I invite you to take a Bible now to open it to Exodus chapter 2, where we're going to read the first 10 verses of Exodus chapter 2. Uh, we began last week a series in Exodus that we will come back to three times this year. Uh, it's, a, it's a longer book, and uh, we'll break for Easter and then break in the summer for a series uh, on the end times or the last things, and then come back to it in the fall uh, as we go through the Ten Commandments. Uh, but we're going to look at the first ten verses today of Exodus chapter 2. It says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman, and the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch, and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and while her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. And then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse that child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And so the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. And so the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. And that'll conclude our reading for this morning. Uh, it's very brief, just ten verses, but uh, it is quite a dramatic and powerful story that we hear uh, just in these few details. Uh, but last week, where it ended, was that Pharaoh, who had this fear of the people of Israel as they were beginning to grow. He started first by just uh, ordering taskmasters to be uh, even stronger and more brutal against the people to try to crush their will and their energy. But as those slave masters did that, the nation only grew. And so then he went another step further and ordered midwives to execute all of the young boys. And they refused to do that. And so where chapter one ended, was that then that persecution intensified to an open decree that anyone who was willing to attack the Israelites' boys had the freedom to do so. And so we saw really quickly this uh, profound progression of sin from just making life a little bit harder to attempted murder to a full-out order of genocide. And we saw that this was a very powerful person who was afraid. And that often... Uh, we can see that happen in our world where simply because someone achieves power doesn't mean they achieve peace. And when someone achieves power in this world and they do not have peace and they live still primarily in fear, they can wreak a lot of havoc on this world. And we now get a glimpse of that through a particular family. That here two people get married, they have a son, and what should otherwise be a time of rejoicing and celebrating is something that they have to keep secret and they actually have to hide their son. Uh, and initially when we read it, it sounds like they just got married and this is probably their first child. But then we quickly hear that this child has an older sister. And then we realize, 
okay, wait, the time frame's a little bit longer from verse one to verse two than we might have initially thought. But with the older sibling being a girl, she, they would have had more freedom with her uh, because the decree did not apply to them. And so now, as they have a son, what we see is that this child is hidden. And it's, it's a, uh, a tragic situation in this world that what Scripture tells us is a gift from God in every human life that therefore has dignity and should be celebrated can in some instances be a source of either shame or fear. And for these parents to wonder uh, how to keep their young one safe. And they do it, but for three months until they basically reach the end of their limits, and then they have this vulnerability of not knowing what else they can do. And so from hiding the child for three months successfully, then uh, the mom takes a dramatic action by placing this child in a basket and putting him in the river to be found further ahead by women uh, who are in the water. And in that sense, she has to abandon whatever future plans that she would have had as a mother for this beautiful young son. And so from a child hidden, we see a future abandoned. Uh, we have no idea what could have been in her mind in those moments leading up to that decision. And one of the dangers for those of us who are familiar with a biblical story is in knowing how the story ends, we could imagine well, no, she was never afraid. Like, she knew how the story was going to end, just like we do. And it's, no, she didn't. She had no way of knowing what would now immediately follow. She is totally vulnerable. She's experiencing the oppression of a cruel leader who, uh, because of nothing or no fault of her own, uh, is after her and her son. And when she takes this dramatic action of assembling a basket, a similar word used for the ark in Genesis, a vessel for the water that she's going to place her son in. Uh, just for us to take a moment and try to imagine reasonably how she would have wrestled with God in that. Like, God, how could, how could this happen? Like, how could the world be like this? That this is, that we have to hide this and now we have to let go of uh, and abandon any sense of plans or desires that we would have for our own son. And the part of the reason the story unfolds in this way is to reiterate for all of us, she has done nothing wrong. The children of Israel have done nothing wrong. But it is often one of the temptations in our minds because of the enemy of our souls that when we go through really hard times and we're in really vulnerable situations, that we feel a sense of shame and say, there must be something wrong with me that I'm going through this. I must have done something wrong that explains why I'm in this situation. And because all of us are sinners, we can almost always find something that we've done wrong. If we think hard enough, we can think of mistakes that we've made. But up to this point, there is nothing that the children of Israel have done and nothing that Moses' mom and dad have done that is therefore a sense of uh, wrongdoing that they're being punished for. But it is in our minds a constant wrestling that when we feel like we have to abandon our plans, that we've in fact been abandoned by God. And that is what the enemy of our soul tells us. He doesn't care about you. He's not watching over you. You wouldn't be in this situation if he was still 
paying attention. We don't know everything that went through her mind, but it's fairly reasonable for us just in our own humanity to put ourselves in those shoes and say, of course there would have been some wrestling with God in having to abandon whatever plans that they had as parents in this dark time. And to remember ourselves that that is the nature of this world, that we can, by no fault of our own, and not connected to specific sin, find ourselves in really desperate and vulnerable situations. And there are many people around us who feel that way. They know what they lack. They, don't, they can't see what tomorrow might bring or what next year might bring, and they feel really vulnerable. And one of the opportunities that we have as Christians is to say to them, you are not abandoned. You have not been left alone or to your own devices. It's not because there's something fundamentally wrong with you. But she goes to this dramatic step. And then what happens following is a turn of events that's so unexpected that if, if we were writing the story, I don't even know that we would be tempted to kind of make it this dramatic of a turn of events. That as now this young child goes and is discovered, his sister's keeping watch. And when this child is discovered and Pharaoh's daughter sees that she can make the suggestion and say, if you need someone to be a wet nurse for this baby, I can get someone from among the Hebrew women. She says, okay, good idea. Go get that person. And that the very person that she goes to get is the mother who abandoned all future plans that she would have had for this young child. And so what she was not free to do and would have done freely with no compensation, right? You're just a mom. This is my job. This is what I'm supposed to do. What she had no freedom to do freely, she now has the complete protection of the government to do and be paid to do it. That's, that's quite the dramatic turn of events <laughs> that she could not have envisioned um, in her wildest dreams, uh, that hoping that, yes, someone would take this child and someone would care for this child, but that it would come back in a way that she would be the very person now not having to hide anymore, no longer in fear, no longer in shame. And we don't know exactly how long that would have been, but again, it would have been fairly normal for a child to nurse for at least a three-year period of time. And so in this, when you thought you only had three months, God gave you three more years. And what you had to do three months hidden, you then had three years at least worth without fear or shame or regret with compensation. That's a dramatic turn of events. And that reality of things looking like they're just destined for failure or they're going to go only one way but somehow turning around the other way is a word that eventually in Scripture is used in describing repentance. That's what it means to repent when a story just feels like it's going one way and, uh-oh, it's getting bad and bad and worse. And yet, somehow, unexpectedly, there's a complete turn and things become better than we might have ever imagined. That's what is meant to happen to every one of our hearts in relation to God, that when we resist him and we run from him, that we would realize how foolish that is and how much we need him and that we would come back to him and experience the joy and the fullness 
of what a relationship with him is, was always supposed to be. And God loves to tell those kind of stories that people think because of where they were born or because of what's happened to them or what they've gone through that it feels like the end of the story's fixed, that there's no way out. It's predetermined. And yet, what the world can't factor in is what God's grace can do to any human heart, wherever they're born, whatever their circumstances, to bring about a different ending than what feels like is automatically just pre already set to happen. There are so many relationships that are that way, relationships that are just frozen because of harsh words and broken promises that just feels like all the momentum is going towards an end. And we need to hear stories of God's intervening grace that helps bring about what should otherwise on its own just keep going in that direction somehow turn around and people who've been refusing to say they're sorry say they're sorry people that have been refusing to see their own sin to acknowledge it and to pursue help and counseling and so we can see it not only in our relation to God but it's meant to be something we desire and crave in our relationships with one another and there's also another idea so I titled the sermon redeeming grace because here is not only the concept of, of repentance, but even redemption. When the Bible uses that word, it often means getting back something that was already yours in the first place. Uh, there's a, a story in my family of a great uncle who one time went to a thrift store and bought at a very cheap price what he thought was a really nice tie and was like, look at this tie. And so he was excited to come home and show his wife that he had just bought this really nice tie for like 10 cents or something really, really cheap. And so when he showed it to her, she then told him that that was his tie that she had taken to the thrift store. <laughs> and so now he went from thinking that he got a really good deal to being frustrated that he just paid something for something that had already belonged to him. Because in our minds, that does. Why You wouldn't pay for something that already belongs to you, except you can imagine how that happened. Yes, it wasn't his anymore. It was taken. It was gone. To get it back required a price. And when the Bible talks about redemption, it talks about God's willingness to pay the price to get what already belonged to him in the first place. And we look at that and say, but you shouldn't have to pay a price. Yeah, he shouldn't. He made us. We're his. Whether we worship him, whether we acknowledge him, whether we serve him, we all only move and exist and breathe and have our being because he's given it to us as a gift. But if through a set of circumstances, it now requires a price to get us back, in Jesus, he's shown us the willingness to pay the price. To say, Satan, you think you've stolen this. Sin, you think you've had your way with this. Death, you think you get the final say. No. Jesus, in his life and death and resurrection, says, I will pay the price so that what already belongs to me is now resecured by me forever. That's redemption. And he's willing to do it.
How amazing is that kind of grace? Well, it's so amazing that even in this brief story that doesn't yet fully understand what's going to happen with Moses' life and doesn't understand what's going to happen in Jesus later in the future, there's still this sense that we need to remember this. And so Moses is given a name. Uh, that his name is Moses, and then the commentator tells us it is because she drew him out of the water. And so here, our last point is that this is a gift that is remembered. Whatever else his name means, it's a way now of, his, uh, of the adopted mother uh, saying, yeah, this wasn't I went out to go make this happen. I received a gift. It, it, it was not a day that she woke up and said, this is my plan for my life or even my plan for this kid's life, but that in a surprising way, out of the water, in a basket, came to her a gift that even at this point, she can't fully understand how the story's gonna unfold. But she knows it's not just her. Moses' mom knows it's not just her. This wasn't just some plan that she can uh, contrive, but this is God who is doing something outside of any one person's control to bring about his purpose and to thwart ultimately an evil empire. And how amazing that because Pharaoh's daughter adopts Moses, now not only does his mother not have to hide with him, but now he has access to food, to resources, to education that would not have been available to him apart from this. And the very court of, of authority, the very house that sought to bring about his end is now the very house that's going to provide him from his youth to his adulthood with so many of the resources he is going to need and draw upon when he leads a nation and sets them free. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for its power we you that you do have redeeming grace for each and every one of us <clears throat> that you delight to get back what rightfully belongs to you and each and every one of our hearts we grieve that we do live in a world where there is so much injustice and so much oppression where there are wicked people who have power to do tremendous amounts of harm but we thank you that they can't ultimately thwart your power and your purpose. That you can subvert them, even through the cries of babies and infants. And so we say along with the psalmist, O oh Lord, O oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That you have set your glory that is higher than the heavens into the cries of babies and infants that can still the voice of the enemy and the avenger. We pray that that good news would give strength and encouragement to our hearts to continue to follow after you, to believe that in our own lives, whatever feels like it's just destined for failure and destined uh, for a bad ending, that you really can turn things around for us individually, in our families, in our community, in our country, in this world, that you delight to turn things around for your glory and our good. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.